HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Modernist Breadcrumbs is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Bob's Red Mill is an employee-owned company that has been offering organic, gluten-free, and stone-ground products for decades. With Bob's Red Mill, you're not just getting quality. You're getting flavor-packed, healthy food that actually tastes amazing. Visit bobsredmill.com today and use the code CRUMBS for 25% off your order. Bob's Red Mill, reminding you to eat wisely. You're irreplaceable. Modernist Breadcrumbs is brought to you by Le Creuset, made in France since 1925. The first and finest enameled cast iron cookware and a favorite for generations. For more information, visit lecreuset.com. That's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T.com. Breadheads, welcome back to Modernist Breadcrumbs. I'm your host, Jordan Werner Berry, here with executive producer Michael Harlan Turkel. George Carlin once said, The things that matter in this country have been reduced in choice. There are two political parties, there are a handful of insurance companies, there are six or seven information centers, but if you want a bagel, there are 23 flavors because you have the illusion of choice. Embracing that illusion, we're gonna spend this episode holed up with breads with holes. The bagel and its 23 flavors, its relatives and reinventions, and its also boiled cousin, the pretzel. Focusing on the presence of negative space is a positive thing, bringing us the whole picture of these iconic breads that have come to represent entire cultures and even dared us to live dangerously. Francisco Magoya, head chef at Modernist Cuisine and co-author of Modernist Bread, gets things rolling with a New York classic. Well, I mean, the bagel is not American, right? It came to America and it became popular here, but it's not American. 
But, you know, if you're from New York or from the tri-state area, you know, everybody's like, no, the only good bagels are here. The transformation of the bagel into an American, and more specifically, a New York City icon, is a story of immigration and assimilation. Donna Gabaccia, a food historian and scholar of international migration, opens her book, We Are What We Eat, Ethnic Food and the Making of Americans, by writing, In the 1890s in the U.S., only Jews from Eastern Europe ate bagels. The bagel was not a central culinary icon for Jewish immigrants. Still, the bagel did become an icon of urban, northeastern eating, a key ingredient of the multi-ethnic mix that in this century became known as the New York Deli. The immigrant neighbors of Eastern European Jewish bakers were among the first to discover the bagel and to begin its transformation from a Jewish specialty into an American food. If bagels are a product of immigration, where did they come from in the first place? Nathan Mirvold, founder of Modernist Cuisine and co-author of Modernist Bread, traces the bagel's origin. Bagels were apparently the invention of a specific baker in a small town outside of Warsaw at some point in the 19th century. But it was clearly a very minor bread from one little area. If people from that particular place hadn't come to New York, it might have been lost to all of us. But by God, they came to New York. They started making it. New York was a melting pot, not only of melting pot in that you have Italians and Irish and Jews and all these other um, uh, people from around the world, but also a melting pot within. So bagels were not an important food across all of the Jewish diaspora. It was just a few places, or just one place, really. Well, then bagels grew in popularity in New York. Um, it became a New York kind of a thing. From there, then bagels have recolonized all kinds of other parts of the world. It's a, a very funny story of how a tradition winds up becoming very widely distributed. And now, if you went to Israel and you said, well, what would the typical uh, the bread of Judaism be? You'd probably get a very, very different answer. It would be a pita-like thing, because in the Mideast, the people who stayed there, that's what they made. So if bagels hadn't made it out to New York, they either wouldn't exist or they would be some very small phenomenon. Donna Gabaccia's research points out that the bagel tells a different kind of American tale. It highlights ways that the production, exchange, marketing, and consumption of food have generated new identities for foods and eaters alike. Looking at bagels in this light, we see that they became firmly identified as Jewish only as Jewish bakers began selling them to their multi-ethnic urban neighbors. When bagels emerged from ghetto stores as a Jewish novelty, bagels with cream cheese quickly became a staple of the cuisine known as New York Deli and was marketed and mass-produced throughout the country under this new regional identity. When international trade brought bagels to Israel, they acquired a third identity as American. And finally, coming full circle, so to speak, the bagel's Americanization sent purists off in search of bagels that seemed more authentically New York Jewish. But aside from being a faithful staple of the tribe, what characterizes a New York bagel, and how are they made? When you boil anything, 
you wind up very rapidly heating the outside of whatever it is you're cooking. In the case of dough, plunging it into boiling water or steam is part of the process in making a bagel. Now, initially you heat it up, you cause gelatinization of the starches that are in the outside because when you heat starch up to a certain temperature in the presence of water, technical terms, it gelatinizes. That's why the crust of bagels is shiny. But then as you sit there and boil it for longer, what happens is you create a skin. And that skin is quite tough when you're making bagels. You're only going to boil it for a relatively short period of time, a couple minutes. Then you take it out and you bake it. But because you've sealed the skin on the outside, you've constrained the inside. It can't go rising very much. A bagel is famously dense. And whatever you think about a New York bagel being dense, in Montreal, they make them even denser. You could you know, break a china plate hitting it with a Montreal bagel. Ah, the New York versus Montreal bagel debate. As a native Vermonter, I grew up in the geographic crux of bagel loyalties. Until I moved to New York, I didn't realize that such hard lines were drawn between the two styles. So, which is better, New York or Montreal? That's always the great debate, especially with um, Black Seed in particular. This is Diana Dowhung, executive chef of Black Seed Bagels in New York City. Black Seed sits in a funny microcosm of the bagel world, making vaguely Montreal-style bagels in the heart of New York City. How dare they? But really, we like to say that we use uh, more of a Montreal cooking method. Um, so the Montreal cooking method is the wood fire and also the usage of honey. And then we like to say our dough is a little bit more New York style. Um, Montreal bagels typically don't use salt and Montreal bagels are a little bit denser than ours. But I guess the other nod to Montreal style would be more of our size. We're not this huge, bloated, you know, typical New York style bagel. We're exactly in the middle because Montreal bagels are pretty dense. Not quite as dense as like a pretzel, but close. Maybe it's a feeling thing. If you want a bagel that's more filling, then have your typical New York style or compromise by scooping it out. The Montreal style may be smaller, but they're sweeter for sure. And that's the true trade-off. Typically, most New York bagels either use lye, which is you know similar to when you make pretzels, or malt syrup. When we use honey, it obviously brings up the cost. That's an obvious thing. Honey is pretty expensive. And it also gives it a little bit more of a sweet flavor. But as far as the actual physicality of it beyond the taste it gives it that nice shine that you see and gives it a little bit of more of a caramelization i feel like new yorkers especially with pizza and bagels everybody has an opinion especially the older generation the older new yorkers are very 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 opinionated about their bagels which you you know again i don't mind i never get upset about anybody's opinion you know i I see it as a challenge well let me convince you after you eat this how you feel afterwards, you know, because they'll automatically judge just coming into the store and seeing that, you know, we're not typically set up like like a super old traditional bagel shop. The, the greatest thing is, you know, when they come in and they don't take a bite first and they automatically say something, I'll often just hand them a bagel. Like, I won't even make them buy it. I'm like, here is a bagel fresh out of the oven. Now tell me what you think. And a lot of times there are those people that are like, ah. I still like my old bagel, but for me, it's like, cool, like, luckily we're in a 
in a city with so many bagel shops. Bagel trends haven't attempted a Detroit style like we've seen in the pizza world, yet there is a spectrum of new ideas coming into the mix. But that's not what Black Seed is attempting to color themselves as. A lot of people will be like, oh, are you guys ever going to do a rainbow bagel? Or what about a chocolate chip, a rainbow grape, unicorn bagel? And that's absolutely not our sound. We don't even have a cinnamon raisin because traditionally that wasn't a thing. You know, we really like to keep the flavors of the bagels themselves, you know, pretty old school, for lack of a better word. But I think as far as the innovation, um, it's always just making sure that our standard is excellent and then you kind of build on top of that you know again using products that are still for lack of a better word bagel-esque or you know very similar to bagel shops but kind of elevating it with using a really great product. I can see future generations referring to these ancient breads with holes as bagel-esque. Categorically acknowledge they're well known enough worldwide but have time in a bigger melting pot truly changed how they're perceived? I am first-generation Thai, American Thai, born in Columbus, Ohio. So obviously my parents didn't grow up with bagels themselves. And they grew up in Florida, which kind of, like, there's nothing there as far as bagels go. Like, Einstein's is the closest. I definitely grew up with Einstein's and Lenders. And I absolutely did not ever think I was going to be the bagel queen. (laughs) Every time I teach class, people are always expecting, you know, a, a... big fat Jewish man that's older and you know nowadays what I like to tell people I'm like you don't have to be Thai to cook Thai food or French to cook French food I think the most amazing thing we have in New York is no matter what culture what race you are what ethnicity you aren't held down to that we're surrounded by so much inspiration and so many different unique cultures that you can literally cook whatever you want but can you For years, bagels have been subject to the criticism of one singular ingredient that seems to make all the difference, the water. There's a reason why when people go to L.A., they say that it's the worst water they've ever tasted. And I know people that have bagel shops in L.A. that will either ship water over or have like crazy $100,000 filtrations that change the pH level of their water. But how realistic is this water world? Can a pH not be balanced enough outside of the Big Apple to make a New York-style bagel in the City of Angels? Co-authors of Modernist Bread, Nathan Mirvold and Francisco Magoya, set out to bust the water myth. First of all, our water supply is really not that different around the world. The few places in the world where there are really strikingly different waters, it's strikingly different because it's poisonous, okay? So it's really bad. Go to Yellowstone, you're not really tempted to drink out of those hot springs because they all smell like rotten eggs. (laughs) And in fact, a lot of well water throughout history has been heavily mineral contaminated, often to the detriment of human health. But once you take that out, water is pretty much the same around the world. So the idea that anything depends on water for a certain place is just automatically suspect. There's an interesting parallel here where it used to be that Neapolitan pizza makers would say our pizzas are superior because of the water here and it's like laced with minerals from the Vesuvius or something like that. But then they soon realized that that wasn't true and they kind of dropped it. Like nobody talks about that anymore because it's like, well, no, they're making fantastic pizzas all over the world. So it's not your water. So just relax about that. 
But New York, nobody's sent the memo to New York yet that it, it has nothing to do with the water. And you get all these explanations that it's the minerals and the magnesium and the calcium that are making for a tighter crumb. All of these things we tested because that sort of statement can be upsetting to anybody who's not from New York, right? It's like, I'm in Phoenix. What do you mean I can't make a good bagel just because I'm not using the, the right water? How is this possible? So we did a lot of testing with that to make sure that we weren't just going to call something out as BS and not have anything to back it up. And we literally had somebody send us jugs of New York City tap water overnight, FedEx, which is not cheap because it's so heavy. And we not only made bagels with them, we also boiled them in that water just to make sure that all of our bases were covered. And the way to do a blind taste test is interesting because if you know up front what things are, it's very hard to have an honest test. So in food, you do what's called a triangle test. So you have two things, New York water, Seattle water. You make a bunch of bagels. And of course, the people who are making bagels know which is which. Then you put three bagels on a plate, or three samples of bagel on a plate, and two of them are identical. Say two are New York or two are Seattle, and one is the other. And then you have someone who doesn't know which is which. Well, the first question is, can you tell which of these three is not like the others? And if you can't tell that, <laughs> well, forget it. Then you can also say, well, which one is better? So we, we did those triangle tests no difference. Then we said, okay, maybe we had some people, transplanted New Yorkers mostly. Turns out they couldn't do it. Then we said, okay, let's use all of our fancy lab equipment to measure the density and the volume and all kinds of other... Nope, that didn't work either. So if it's not what's in the water, then what is it? A placebo effect? Or is it the Phoenix airport dilemma? Nobody could tell the difference. Absolutely nobody could tell the difference. And part of it is also context, right? I mean, if you're having a bagel in New York City, it's different from having a bagel in, you know, Tallahassee. People so many times forget context of where they're eating things and what, who they're with, their environment, and so forth. There is this aura of mysticism around the bagel in New York City. I will say this, and I will always say it, I've had terrible bagels in New York City, too. Like, worse than you've had even, like, at, you know, the Phoenix airport. And so how do they explain their terrible bagels? I mean, what did they do that was so awful that even the water could not rescue this bagel? While you test the pH of your water, we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Modernist Breadcrumbs is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill. Bob's Red Mill is an employee-owned company that has been offering organic, gluten-free, and stone ground products for decades. When you're making pretzels, a good strong flour is all you need, whether the goal is a hard pretzel or a soft one. The artisan unbleached bread flour from Bob's Red Mill is a premium high-protein flour milled from America's highest quality wheat. It gives it the chew or crunch you're looking for, whether in Pennsylvania, Dutch country, or Swabian Germany. With Bob's Red Mill, you're not just getting quality, you're getting flavor-packed, healthy food that actually tastes amazing. Visit bobsredmill.com and use the code CRUMBS for 25% off your order. Bob's Red Mill, reminding you to eat wisely. You're irreplaceable. Modernist Breadcrumbs is brought to you by La Crusade. La Crusade was the first to pioneer colorful enameled cookware over 90 years ago. 
With that history and experience, they produce the finest quality in design. They've been a favorite for generations through the meals it creates and the style it expresses. If you're bubbling over with excitement at the idea of making your own bagels at home, the Le Creuset Stockpot is my vessel of choice. Designed to function efficiently on a full range of heat sources, enamel on steel stockpots are not only resistant to wear and damage, but they're also versatile enough for any type of stovetop, old or new. If you're inspired by Diana's Montreal-style honey boil or more into playing around with malt syrup, a perfect bagel is only a boil and bake away. Original heirloom cookware backed by a lifetime warranty only from Le Creuset. Visit lecreuset.com backslash bread to explore their entire collection of cast iron cookware and search their recipe page to get started. Enjoy special offers and free shipping with the code BREAD. Welcome back to Modernist Breadcrumbs. On the second floor of the Freehand Hotel in New York City's Gramercy area, a new chapter of Holy Baked Goods is being written by Zoe Kanan, head baker at Studio and Simon and the Whale. Her pastry prowess has impressed critics with a sticky, seductive halva caramel bun. But it's the simmet, a not-so-distant cousin to the bagel, that's allowed Kanan to break free from the pressure and mysticism of the whole thing. We realized we should really talk about the simmet, the OG bagel. Can you wax poetic about the history of the simmet or how you fell into being one of the most renowned simmet bakers in New York? I don't know if I'm qualified to wax poetically about it, um, not being a Turk myself, but I first fell in love with it at Galulu Bakery in Astoria, which is a Turkish bakery. I was drawn to it because as a Jew, I see a bagel and I can't pass it up. So I went for it. You know, it had some familiar qualities, but also had its differences. So I was curious about it and did a little bit of research, watched a lot of YouTube videos. I remember it being referenced when I worked at Sedell's making bagels with Melissa Weller. Whenever we would shape the bagels with a hole, the hole was too big. She would joke that we weren't making simmets, we were making bagels. The recipe that we are serving in studio at the freehand is a bit of a hybrid recipe. So I took a lot of the elements that I love from a New York style bagel and my experience making and eating those and threw in some of the elements of the cement. And, and that is sort of how we landed with the version that you've enjoyed in studio. Let's talk about some of the ingredients or flavor profiles because it isn't a typical bagel dough. Uh, it's a little sweeter than, I don't know, I wouldn't call a bagel savory. We use grape molasses. There's a portion of it in the dough, and then it's also dipped in a bath. Of Sometimes it's just straight molasses. Sometimes it's a solution of water and about 5% molasses. And that is definitely one of the characteristic flavors of the cement. So for me, it's really about the great molasses mingling with the traditional topping of sesame seeds that's coated on the exterior. There are also versions with flax seeds and some sort of interesting, more rusk-like versions that are made with fennel or any seed. 
why sesame? What does that add to the flavor profile? Yeah, I'm a huge sesame fan. So I think the sesame adds this really interesting sort of rich and buttery bitterness to the dough. And so I think the sweetness that is present from the grape and the nutty and bitter qualities that come through from the sesame combined with a pretty quick and hot bake make this like beautiful bouquet of flavor that's really special and unique to the Samin. You must have specifics about texture too, because I've seen in my research that in a lot of South Slavic countries, simits are also called gavreks or crisps, but they aren't inherently crisp. There are a lot of variations on the simit from what I've seen. And the texture is, it has a a fluffy interior, fluffy and sweet. And then the dunk in the great molasses water and the coating of sesame seeds into the oven gives it the crisp exterior on the outside. So it's a really lovely textural combination. It's different from a bagel in that it's not boiled. So they're sometimes dipped in a hot uh, grape water solution. Sometimes it's just room temperature. Um, but because they're not boiled and those starches on the exterior are not gelatinizing through that process, they have a little bit more room to rise in the oven. So they're certainly fluffier than what you would think of as a bagel texture. I've certainly had my fair share on the breakfast menu at Studio, but why is it specifically for that meal and what is it served with? Nutella as a popular option, but more traditionally would be cheese or like a feta or a kashkaval cheese. And tea would be a super classic breakfast. You do one that's more of a New York bagel breakfast sandwich that has fried eggs and a spicy harissa mayo and avocado. And then we do a version with lox and preserved lemon and labne as another take on it. But my personal favorite as a breadhead and purist is just plain toasted with a little bit of feta cheese. As a Simit purist, do you also serve it by stacking them on your head and giving them to the guests that way? <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm currently embattled with the New York Department of Health on getting that form of service approved. But <laughs> if any listeners want to help with that effort, then we can push that through. Presentation aside, it's the underlying process of the simit that sets it apart from a New York-style bagel. But it's the science behind the bagel that may create an even larger cultural divide, one steeped in lye. My name is Harold McGee, and I've been writing about the science, the chemistry especially, of food and cooking for decades. We reached out to Harold to help us understand why would anyone use a corrosive alkali to make a bagel better? Welcome to the wild world of lye. Its chemical name is sodium hydroxide, and it's a really strong base, which is the opposite of an acid. We're more familiar with acids in the kitchen because vinegar and lemon juice and things like that are used in a lot of recipes. The chemical opposite, uh, alkalinity or basicity, uh, isn't used that often. We don't have that many ingredients that provide it. 
and lye is sort of the extreme version. It's the one of the most alkaline or basic materials you can find. The pH scale ranges from 0 to 14. 7 is neutral. Water is 7. Lemon juice is 2. Baking powder is around 8. And lye tops the scale at 14. Well, the, the main thing it does is provide the conditions for speeded up browning reactions. So in baking, uh, what you're doing is putting a dough or a batter in the oven and heating it until it solidifies throughout, sets, and gets a nice brown crust, which is really flavorful. The development of the flavor and the color in the crust are helped out by the chemical conditions in which that's occurring, and it turns out that acidity tends to suppress those reactions, and the basicity, uh, the opposite of acidity, tends to accelerate them. So if you make a sourdough, for example, you'll notice that the crust of the sourdough bread browns more slowly and doesn't brown as much as the same bread made with yeast. And so what you're doing when you're using lye in baking is providing conditions to accelerate those browning reactions that give you the, the color and flavor. The lye is like a spray tan for your bread, right? Besides its smashing good looks, what does that browning bring to a bread? It's a distinct flavor. It's a, a version of the Maillard reactions or the browning reactions that give us the, the flavor of all foods that have been dried out enough to begin to turn brown. But because it's done under such extreme chemical conditions, the extreme alkalinity of lye, it's a flavor that is more intense and slightly different in character from what we're used to because the reactions are somewhat different and proceed further and more quickly. So there is that really distinctive pretzely, bagel crusty flavor that you just don't get any other way. Lye is powerful and needs to be treated with respect, or you might melt your skin off. If a substitute is more your speed, baking soda is a more subtle base. So lye is one of the reasons it's rare in the kitchen is that it's a really powerful chemical. It's caustic. It can burn you if you don't handle it carefully. And uh, baking soda, of course, is very innocuous. It's something that we use all the time. And if we spill a little on ourselves, we don't think twice about it. So baking soda itself is not a good uh, substitute. What you can do to make baking soda stronger and, and more like lye, although still not quite that strong, is to simply bake it in the oven for an hour or so at a medium temperature. And what that does is convert the sodium bicarbonate, which is baking soda, into sodium carbonate, which is still basically the same chemical, but a stronger version of it. Not one to lie low, co-author of Modernist Bread, Francisco Magoya, has lived a little fast and loose with his alkaline experiments. We sometimes have made the mistake, and I should say I have made the mistake, of maybe uh, using one glove and accidentally getting a little bit of a lye solution in my hands. And it's, it's really weird because you can feel your skin start to melt. And so you want to rinse pretty quickly. And I've had like a couple times splatters on my arms from the lye solution, and it like it burns you. And you have to make sure that you rinse it. I mean, they use it for 
basically it, it'll dissolve pretty much anything if you leave it enough on something for a long enough period of time. So some people like to use the lye solution. They like to warm it up a bit because it does help like with, the, with it like really impregnating the dough. But that's a little bit dangerous because you get fumes from the lye. And in fact, an interesting thing happens when you combine lye and water. The water gets hot. It's this chemical reaction that is occurring in the lye bath that makes the water warm. So you don't really need to do that. You don't need to put yourself in that like harmful situation of, of heating up the lye because you're also inhaling it and, and you don't really want to have lye in your lungs. In some countries, you can't even get lye. I tried to do demo in January. I was going to do a pretzel and in Bangkok, and they didn't even know what I was talking about. Like it, it's just it's one of those things that... And I didn't want to bring lye in either in my suitcase because God knows how do you explain, you know, yes, it's, you can use this to dissolve bodies, but I'm going to use it for making pretzels. How do you explain that to somebody who's never had a pretzel, right? And I decided to demo something else completely. Aye, there lies the rub. It's basic common sense. Baking neutralizes the lye, but you can never be too careful. So typically for pretzels and for bagels, you want to use very strong flours. And you don't want to have something that's going to be porous, and this is important, because you don't want the lye seeping into the crust. A couple of times we cut into a pretzel where it, like, it seeped through where you do the knot, and it does this weird thing where it looks like this gummy brown crumb, and it just smells a lot like lye, and obviously we don't eat that part, but it could be dangerous. So that's why you use... The dough is typically very low hydration, but also very strong flour, so that it creates this like super tight surface on the dough. Cassie Alia is a baker at Julius Sturgis, and Julius Sturgis is synonymous with pretzels in Pennsylvania Dutch country. History has it that pretzels were invented in 610 AD by an Italian monk. The unmistakable twist in the dough, symbolic of a child's folded arms while at prayer. After Mass, pretzels were handed out as pretiola, or little reward. Some say the pretzels' three holes are supposed to represent the Holy Trinity, the knot in the middle, a parent's marriage. In Pennsylvania, the only question is, hard or soft? Julia Sturgis is credited with being the one to start the first commercial hard pretzel bakery in America, and he opened his bakery here in 1861. He ended up working up the street for a man named Henry Roush, and as he was working there as an apprentice, he was cleaning the ovens out and noticed that a lot of the soft pretzels would be left in there overnight and to dry out. So he would usually feed these to the livestock, and one day he just decided to try one, and he ended up liking it and decided to start selling these hard pretzels. Our bakery was added on by Julius in 1861 to the original house. It's a stone house and then a, a brick section. So the front room, when you come in, would have been the original retail store, and then you would walk through to take the tour, and that is where you'll see the original equipment and things like that. We do have the original ovens down there. Uh, we don't use them anymore, though. Uh, lots of fire hazards with that. Uh, we do have a lot of original equipment. We have the original gun waiter that they would have taken up uh, stairs to dry the pretzels out. These pretzels are making me thirsty. Too many pretzels dry out the mouth and, in my opinion, are best enjoyed with a nice cold mug of beer. While most bars I frequent have bowls of hard twists, my local, Angry Weights, serves fresh, warm, soft pretzels. 
are soft pretzels. You make them from scratch. We use two different types of flour, a winter wheat and a spring wheat. Uh, we use some barley malt oil and yeast uh, and a little bit of sourdough, and that's all we use for our soft pretzels. They're only good for about two hours because we don't use any preservatives in them, um, which makes them really, really yummy. We do twist them all by hand. They're then baked in the oven um, at 550 for uh, like five to eight minutes and come out nice and hot and fresh and ready to go. So we do have a nice traditional bread pretzel. Most other bakeries will add like butter or sugar to their pretzels, so they do look a little different and taste a little different than ours too. We do use sodium hydroxide, which I guess is technically lye, um, <laughs> but it's really just an industrial strength baking soda, and they're only in there for a quick little 10-second dip. We don't boil them in it or anything. Uh, we use a, a, a barley malt. Um, it's a real nice sweet flavor to the pretzels without adding any extra um, like outside sugar. It gives our pretzels a real nice golden brown color in the center, um, and that is the recipe that Julius was using when he first started. The connections between bagels and pretzels go deeper than holes, or even boiling. Nathan Mirvold reminds us that pretzels are old, and not just when they've been left out overnight. There are people who believe that bagels were effectively somebody's adaptation of pretzels to a different shape. That's certainly a possibility. Pretzels, by the way, are a very old type of bread. When we're working on modernist bread, I wondered what bread looked like in the past. That sounds like a dumb question, but things that are very commonplace and that everyone knows what they look like, people don't tend to write down or describe in detail, because like, why would you? Everybody knows. So what we wound up doing was going to art museums and uh, searching online to find pictures that had bread in them, paintings. Paintings, drawings, etchings, anything that would have bread in it, so we could see what the bread looked like in the past. Pretzels appear in German art going all the way back to the 13 and 1400s. And if you're interested in looking for pictures of bread, religious pictures are the best thing for early art because early art was dominated by religious imagery. And the Last Supper is your friend. Because the Last Supper shows a whole bunch of people sitting down to a table. And so all the foods that they had, they would put there. And you have to view the, these paintings as being like a graphic novel. Most of Europe was illiterate. They were heavily Christian. But most of the congregation could not read, couldn't read a Bible. So the point of paintings of the Last Supper, paintings of biblical scenes was to be just like a graphic novel to show people this. And people would project what they knew onto these religious scenes. So German paintings of the Last Supper show Christ and the apostles sitting down to a table eating pretzels. Because they couldn't possibly imagine that Christ wouldn't have pretzels. Come on, we all have pretzels. <laughs> now, of course, historically, this is Highly unlikely to be the case. Pretzels aren't known from the Holy Land area. This couldn't possibly be true historically, but they didn't know that then. And even if they had an inkling, that wouldn't have served the purpose. Festivus, yes. Bagels, no. 
If you're joining Seinfeld's Kramer on a bagel-making strike, pretzels are there for you with just a few quick twists. And when the strike is over, Francisco has advice on how to celebrate the holy days. There's two ways of forming a bagel. One is to make, you basically make like little rolls. And this is how a lot of like industrial production does it, which there's a machine that basically the, the, the balls of dough go through this conical-shaped cone. It's like this tube that they roll the piece of dough through so it makes a hole in the middle and there's no gap. It's like a ring of dough. And you can do that with your thumbs. You can do it with your hand and it works pretty well. I prefer that method. Or you can also do this, you know, you roll it out into a tube and then you just like seal the ends together by rolling them back and forth together. And that's okay. It's a, it's a, that's a different look. Uh, that is a preference that some bagel makers have and, that, and it also works fine too. It's not as neat as having a ring, but that's the pastry chef in me, I guess. Tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies. Oh, no, no, you can't disguise. And we can't disguise the holes in our collective consciousness that these breads have dug. From the street carts of New York City to the pretzel factories in Pennsylvania, these shapes and their importance go beyond sustenance. They're symbols of culture, of patterns of immigration, and of culinary innovation. If they didn't hold so much meaning, would we be so dedicated to a process where we have to hold our breath during boiling? Would two cities, New York and Montreal, be in such a legendary standoff about the structure of a roll? No matter where you are or what the pH of your water is, these holy breads deserve to be exalted. This has been episode 14 of Modernist Breadcrumbs in Boiled in Lies. In the next episode, we'll head home for the holidays with a cornucopia of breads. Special thanks this week to Diana Dowhung, Zoe Kanan, Harold McGee, and Cassie Alia. Modernist Breadcrumbs is produced by executive producer Michael Harlan Turkel and me, Jordan Werner Berry, in collaboration with Modernist Cuisine. Our audio engineer is Noam Osban. Our theme music is composed by Thomas Hughes and Gretchen Loos. Hear more on Instagram at Carol Cleveland Sings. Modernist Breadcrumbs is a production of Heritage Radio Network. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. Thanks for listening.